you can open up to Luke chapter 5. Getting back in the book of Luke, but not for our series in the book of Luke. We'll get back to that here in a few weeks. Uh, Staying in our new series here, Finding Rhythm, and we're going to revisit a passage that we looked at uh, actually on Easter of last year. Uh, and we are going to, uh, to, to look at that passage and kind of let it teach us uh, again. So Luke chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We're also going to be in Joel chapter 1 and 2 and all over the place because that's kind of how we do this, uh, this series right now. And uh, I think I said this last week and I'll say it again. I got a lot to get to. And so this is all gas and no brakes. We got a lot to, a lot to, uh, a lot to cover Uh, The basic premise of this series is that the Christian life works best when it takes place in a uh, a rhythm. But the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the church in the West, especially the American church... Um, especially those that are less liturgical, that are less formal, like our church, uh, that, that we tend to be primarily driven by uh, form and function and, and process. We like our structures. We depend on our structures uh, to produce the godly life that we desire, which is not a bad thing, except when we become overly dependent upon those things, it can lead us to kind of... Uh, kind of get out of step just a little bit. So we like our quiet times. We like Bible studies. We like Sunday morning church gatherings, like what we're doing right now. Uh, Those are kind of the standard practices that we have. What we say, what we do, what we sing uh, each Sunday pretty much looks like it did the previous Sunday. Obviously, the, uh, the exact, you know, text that we cover and everything that we're talking about changes just a little bit, but for the most part, you know what you're going to get here on a Sunday morning, and you know what you're going to get if you've been here at Providence for any time. You kind of know how things are going to work and what, uh, what it is that we do, which has its, its pluses and its minuses. Unfortunately, most of what we, can, we do, not just here at Providence, but as, a, as an American church, uh, is that it can leave us a little bit, a, a little bit top-heavy, a, a, a lot of head without much time built in to reflect on uh, our, our hearts. And so m- my goal in this series is to shake that up just a little bit. Still talking very much to, to our heads. We want to learn. We're not here for empty emotionalism, uh, but very much wanting to kind of cultivate some practices in our walk that is not just about information gathering, but instead about using our, our hearts in rhythm with that information that we uh, that we, we, we gathered. So th- think of this as kind of like, like a swing set, like a, a kid on a swing, right? What makes a swing fun is when it goes back and forth and back and forth. What's not fun is when the swing just keeps going round and round and round. I don't know if you as a kid ever tried to do that and defeat the laws of gravity. Uh, I never made it, but maybe you did. But at some point, that gets not fun, right? You want to go back and forth and back and forth. Or think of it like a, a seesaw, not like safety seesaws like they have today, but the good old-fashioned trust-your-partner seesaw where you, you are dependent upon them to not wish you pain. Uh, and you go up, and then you go down, and you find a rhythm, and you go back and forth, and this is fun until somebody jumps off, and then you come crashing down, right? When it works well is when there is a rhythm, whenever it's going back and forth. When it doesn't work well is when the rhythm breaks, and you come crashing down, and somebody gets hurt. The idea here is that the Christian life works, better, works best when there is a rhythm, not when you're just stuck in one place. 
And so what we're trying to do in this series is get you into that rhythm, that, that seesaw back and forth, not because we want to go up and down, but because this is the way the Christian life is supposed to work. And i got all kinds of things I'm going to say about that in, in coming weeks, but uh, this morning, the main thing I want you to know is that, that rhythm is a good and necessary uh, thing for us. And I'll be honest, as I started this sermon, as I began to prepare this sermon, I thought I knew exactly where I was going to go with this. As, we, as I talked about this toward the end, of, uh, the end of the year last year and began to think about how we would start the new year and began to think through this, uh, th- this idea was actually suggested by, by Shay. Uh, we're going to be talking about the idea of feasting and fasting. That is what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. And I thought, all right, well, I know what those two things are about. I know what that sermon will be about. That one shouldn't be too much for me to prepare because I know what fasting is and I definitely know what feasting is. And so we'll be, we'll be good. I, c- I can do this. Here's what I found out as I prepared this sermon. I had no idea what fasting was. I thought I knew. But I had no idea. And I'm, I'm going to bet you probably don't either. I'm going to bet you probably think you know what fasting is about. But biblically speaking, you're probably wrong. All right? So what that means is this sermon went woof, way over here for me as I began to learn and study this. And so I've got a lot that I'm going to try and cover. But I think when we get to the end of it, we will find our ourselves in a healthier place. Last week, last week, we talked about the rhythm of, of waiting and pursuing, how God calls us to both, how they often look very different uh, and can even run in conflict with one another. And the trick is to find the rhythm between the two, the back and uh, the, the forth. And then, uh, so today then, we're going to move to this idea about uh, feasting and uh, fasting. So what I want to do is I want to look at our passage um, and, and we're going to talk about primarily about uh, the, the, the very literal way that fasting works, but it, it really works just as much, if not more so, in a metaphorical idea of how the Christian life should work. I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that here in a minute. So Luke chapter 5, verse 33. Maybe you remember this from Easter Sunday. And then they said to him, this is the, the Pharisees talking to Jesus. John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same. But yours, Jesus, eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, You can't make the wedding guests fast while the, while the groom is with them, can you? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. We talked about all kinds of things related to this back in Easter. You can go back and listen to that. It is uh, online. It's there with our podcast as well. You can go back and you can read how we, what, how we related that to the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it's one of my favorite Easter sermons I've ever done. Um, but this morning, as I read this passage, I specifically want to deal with these two seemingly opposite ideas that the Pharisees are highlighting. Hey, most disciples fast. Yours seem to feast all the time, Jesus. Why is it that yours are so different? Is it because, the subtle implication here is, is it because your disciples lack the willpower to fast? Is it because they aren't good enough to be able to uh, fast. And, and, and what, what I want to be able to do is see how both of these things, Jesus says, are good, necessary part of our spiritual life. And then I want to try to answer the question, what does it have to do with us this first Sunday of 2024? What does it have to do with our lives and how we are to pursue uh, Jesus? 
And what, we'll be, what we're talking about here, and although we, we, we may not see it right away, what Jesus is talking about here is rhythm. That there's a time and a place for both of these things to happen. Both are needed. And here's the thing. Both are just expected. It's just expected that we will fast. It will be a part of what we, um, what we do. But, so before we get to this passage too much, I, I want to kind of define some terms just a little bit here. What I'm talking about when I talk about fasting. What is fasting? Why do we do it? What's it for? Now, fasting can take a lot of forms. And sometimes fasting is, is from all food. And that's probably the most common. Sometimes it's a specific food during Lent. This is uh, the, the, the time in, we'll get to Lent in just a second. During Lent, Catholics don't eat meat on Fridays. Like that's a very specific, specific deal. Uh, it's why here in just a couple of weeks, you're going to suddenly see that McDonald's is advertising their filet of fish again. And why all of a sudden Arby's and Bojangles and all these other people are going to start having fish sandwiches. It's because Catholics can't eat meat on Fridays during Lent. That's why you're going to see that. Um, for, for those of us who didn't grow up Catholic or didn't grow up around a whole lot of Catholics, you might be like, why is there always fish in January? I guess it's in season. I don't know. But th- this, this is why. This is why you see this advertised in January and February is because it is, ta- it is, it is tied to, uh, to, to Lent. It's tied to Ash Wednesday and Fat Tuesday and all of these things that you've heard. And you're like, what, what is all that about? I'm not even going to address all that stuff. I'm telling you, we could do this forever. I'll tell you one thing that I've learned in this sermon, or as I prepared this sermon. I could do a whole sermon series about the theology of food, and it would be good. Except y'all wouldn't think about anything except food the whole time that I'm talking. So it needs to be like a teaching series post-dinner on like a Wednesday night or something, not a Sunday morning where you're just going to sit here and think about like Elsa's on or something. So... Um, but I'm, there's so much I'm not even going to get into. But uh, other times fasting can be about from uh, a different kind of specific food uh, like, or, or, or like a specific thing that's just prominent in your life. I know people, some people that fast from caffeine during, uh, during Lent. That's like a big thing that they do. I, I know, I remember somebody in college, they fasted from Slim Jims and Dr. Peppers during Lent. That is what they felt like they needed to, uh, to eliminate from their, uh, from their diet. Uh, for others, it's some kind of like creature comfort, like technology or social media or television or, or something like, like that. For, for some, it's skipping one meal. For some, it's like an extraordinary long time, like for 40 days. Uh, honestly, in the American church, our fast can take just about any form for any length of time for a wide variety of reasons. So for the sake of simplicity, when I talk about fasting this morning, I'm talking about food. And probably for a day or more, just depending on uh, the context, but I'm going to be talking about uh, food. And, 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 and when I call you to, to a fast and call you to fasting, which I'm going to do preview at the end of this, uh, the end of this sermon, but it's going to be different than you think it is. When I call you to that, I'm primarily assuming that food will be your type of fast. But you need to figure out what you and your body can handle. You need to talk about it. You may need to talk about it with, with a doctor. You may need to talk about it with somebody else. But this is primarily what I have in mind whenever I uh, say this. You do what you need to do in this. The Bible assumes food in a fast. There's no real discussion of any other type of fast in uh, the Bible, but what you'll also see is the Bible is remarkably non-specific about what a fast is, about what it's for. We'll see all that here, here in just a second. 
And another caveat here is if, if I were to preach a message where my goal was to get you to be a person who participates in a fast, there is a lot of things that I could say here uh, that, that would push you in that, that, that direction. I could tell you that, that fasting is, in fact, the number one trend in diets right now, probably more so than just a, a trend. This idea of intermittent fasting is probably the physical version of what I'm trying to convince you to participate in in a spiritual form. The intermittent fasting probably works because it is a natural rhythm to our eating that our modern society has made almost unnecessary because we have as much food as we want whenever we, uh, we want. And so I, if, if I wanted you to become a person who fasts, I would, I would spend long time talking about all the health benefits. I'm not talking about any of that. I don't really care what the health benefits are this morning. Talk to your dietitian, your doctor, or your trainer for that. I'm a pastor. I'm here to talk to you about following Jesus. I want to argue that fasting and feasting are essential to a healthy walk with Jesus. And the only healthy way to walk through joy and suffering of this world is where we can see both as beneficial spiritual practices for us. That is my goal in this sermon. So, how's that for an introduction? So, fasting. What is it? The answer is, surprisingly, in the Bible, very hard to find. Nowhere are we given instructions about fasting other than the fact that we aren't supposed to make a show of it. Outside of that, we're told very little about this is why you fast or this is how you fast. Uh, The only way for us to understand fasting is simply to observe it in Scripture and then make sense out of this short little teaching that we have in Luke chapter 5 from Jesus. So how do we currently see fasting and feasting? If you grew up in church like I did, so maybe I'm making some assumptions here, maybe your idea of fasting is totally different from mine. But my guess is if you grew up in church or if you've been around a church outside of a a liturgical formal, like a Catholic tradition, here's how fasting works for you. It's like spinach for Popeye. If you take the spinach then you become, go from being an ordinary person to a supercharged person that can do amazing things. That's what fasting is for our prayers. It's like spinach for Popeye. It takes our prayers from being ordinary prayers to these prayers that are like super prayers. That's how fasting uh, works. This is what, how I've always understood fasting to work. Or that it is, uh, it is we, we, we fast in order to highlight what we think is important. Like what we really want God to pay attention to. So fasting is the equivalent, uh, is the equivalent of like a neon sign that says, God, pay attention to this thing I'm praying for because, look, I'm extra praying for it. That's basically what fasting uh, is designed uh, to do. And so it kind of forces God's hand to listen to us because now we really mean it. That's how fasting uh, has, has worked. It's also worked as a performance-oriented faith. If I do this, then God is supposed to do this. If God is happy with me, then I will get what I want. So I'm going to show myself to be super spiritual so that I'll get exactly what I want from God. And it becomes this kind of self-discipline ritual to prove to ourselves and to God just how much we love him. 
And so the more we, the more we like the thing that we decide to, to fast from, uh, the more we tell God that we love him and the more we prove to ourselves how much we love God. You know, if somebody asked me to fast from watching NBA basketball games, that would be not showing much of love towards God because I don't watch NBA basketball games. I haven't watched them in years. Not that exciting to me. But if somebody said I needed to fast from watching college football games and I went a whole year without watching college football games, then I could be like, see, Jesus, I really love you. I gave up college football games because that's really important to me, right? So the more important it is, the more we can say we love God. Jesus. Or fasting is just rote religion, prescribed fast, and we just do it because we're supposed to. My guess is fasting either works on all of those categories or some of those categories for you. That's probably what fasting means for you. And none of that is in the Bible. Not one shred of that is in the Bible. But that's how we use fasting. And so this is how I went on a complete like rabbit trail over here trying to figure this out because as I started looking at this I was like well that's not what it is then what is it and if I'm going to call people to a fast then what am I calling them to I've got to know that so this is where we are today so we get to this place and we say so so if if Jesus says he expects us to fast why does he expect us to do that why is that supposed to be part of, of what we do? Biblically speaking, it's very different than anything we've ever used to describe it. Biblically speaking, the way that fasting works is that we are not the... So let me, let me back up just a little bit. All of those things that I just said, the way it works is we are the primary actor. We are the initiator of the fast. God responds to our fast. Are you tracking with me on that? So we fast, God responds. Biblically speaking, it's the exact opposite. God acts, we respond with a fast. That's how it works in the Bible. Exactly the opposite of the way that we use it. Because we use it for performance and to get something from God. God uses it, uh, the the way that, that it's used in Scripture, the way that God uses that rhythm is it is a time for us to pause and to reflect and to remember and to dwell on what has just happened. All right? So, so biblically speaking, fasting is not an initiated and acted out by us in order to get something. It is done by us as a response to something that God has already done. And that changes everything about the way that fasting is supposed to work. And so there's, there's really four primary ways the Bible talks about fasting. And it's a little bit different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. And that makes all the difference. But we'll get to that at the very end of this, uh, at this sermon. All right, so I'm getting ready to go through a lot of stuff. So hang with me, all right? The first mention of fasting is in Exodus 34. Moses has led the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea. They've come to Mount Sinai. They've been there at Mount Sinai. Moses is going up the mountain. As he goes up the mountain, God says, get out two tablets. I want you to write down these things on these tablets. Moses does what he uh, is told to do. God renews his covenant with Israel through Moses' intercession. And Moses is up there for 40 days. And it says he doesn't eat or drink. And I don't know how that works because medically that should not be possible. Uh, But that's what it says he doesn't eat or drink, uh, and then he comes down the the mountain with his face shining. You remember that story as Moses comes down, his face is shining. He fasted for 40 days while he was up there. 
So that's the first mention that we have of fasting. He's not up there fasting saying, God, I, I, I'm really, really praying for this thing, and I really, really, really want you to pay attention. Instead, he's responding to this amazing thing that has just happened. He's been in the presence of God, and he fasts. The, ne- the next place I want you to look is 1 Kings chapter 19. Somebody we recently studied, Elijah. He's just defeated the prophets of Baal, called down fire, done this amazing thing. And then Jezebel has come out after him and said, go get him. He'll be dead by, uh, by tomorrow. And Elijah, instead of saying, did you not see what I just did? He says, oh, that's terrifying. And he decides to run. It's one of the more mystifying things in all of scripture, why Elijah decides to run right there. But he does. He runs and he runs and he runs and he runs until he's exhausted. He collapses under a tree and he basically says, I just want to die. And then it says that an angel comes up to him, gives him food and water. And then on that food and water that he received from an angel, he then fasts for 40 days as he makes his way to Mount Horeb, where he there hears the still small voice of God. You remember this story in scripture, 40 days ahead of what is about to happen, where he he hears from God and right after what has just happened, where he has witnessed the presence of God as he has called down fire. Later in the, two, in the New Testament, we'll see Jesus do something similar. He has a huge moment, this, uh, this moment that kind of begins his ministry, kind of a coming out moment where he's baptized by John, and then immediately after his baptism, he gets up out of the water, and he heads out toward the desert, and he fasts for 40 days before he launches into his public ministry. And then in Acts chapter 13, uh, I'm going to read this, Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now in the church of, at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manaen, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so just talking about it as though it's like a normal course of action, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then after they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So notice the pattern in all of these things that I have given you here. The fasting is preceded by a significant spiritual event followed by a significant moment in the lives of these people. So God has called them to a new work to go do something new and the fasting preceded that and what was before the fasting was some big moment and movement of God. We didn't see that there in Acts, but if you just back up a chapter or two, you can see how, uh, how Paul ended up in in Antioch. So big events before and after. These men are now fasting. These men are, are, are they're, they're not fasting to force God's hand to, to show up. God has already shown up and they are responding to a massive work of God in a way that effectively embodies physically a spiritual reality that is already happening. The fast is the outward display of what is happening on the inside. That's one way that a fast is discussed in Scripture. So that's one. The second way that a fast is portrayed is in a deep time of spiritual conviction, whether that be personally or more likely in Scripture, and there's a whole other sermon here, corporately for an entire nation or for the people of God. That is the second way a fast is talked about often in Scripture. Joel chapter 1, listen to this. This is verses 13 and 14. Dress in sackcloth and lament, you priests. Wail, you ministers of, uh, of the altar. Come and spend the night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God. 
because grain and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Announce a sacred fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the residents of the Lord at the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So here, fasting is not initiated by God's people in order, to, uh, in order to prompt God to hear them. It is simply a response of grief to their sin and the expected national calamity that's about to come. Because Joel is prophesying about the coming judgment of God. So fasting is seen as a natural response for the conviction of sin and, for the, and to the fear of of God that should come alongside a conviction of sin. That's how fasting is seen there. So that's two ways. The third way is national and corporate uh, pain or grief or uh, calamity, not necessarily due to sin. So one is due to sin, the other is not. In Esther chapter 4, Mordecai has just learned that the king has been tricked by Haman into a plan that will see all the Jews in the kingdom killed. In response, here's what Mordecai does. Esther 4, 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went into the middle of the city and he cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict reached. They fasted, they wept, and they lamented. And many lay in sackcloth in ashes. If you go to Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah hears about, uh, 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 about his, his people and his city being in ruin. And, he's, and he, he enters into this great time of mourning over, this, over his city being ruined and his people being all spread out. And before he goes to ask the king if he might go to be the one to help rebuild the wall around the city of uh, Jerusalem, before he goes and says help, I, that I want to do this, he, he laments the state of his people. And he does so with fasting. That's basically it. That's the three main ways that fasting happens in Scripture. Nothing in there about spinach for your prayers to make you super strong. Nothing in there about God liking you more because you fasted. Nothing like that at all. There's basically there's one other way. There is a fourth way but, but it's, it's almost mentioned in, in passing is that, that it's basically just a, an assumed couplet with prayer. It just says that they were praying and fasting, and then it just kind of moves on. It, it doesn't say why. It doesn't say what their purpose was. It's just a natural couplet paired with prayer. They pray and they fast. Now, there's a host of discussions in the New Testament about, about eating, about what's allowed and what's not, about not allowing anyone to judge you for what you eat and for what you don't, about not allowing anyone to judge you for your fast and for your feasts. Uh, and to that end, I say, amen, I am not calling you in or, I, I am not calling you to a fast in order to make you look good to anyone or to God himself. In fact, it's probably best if fewer people know it that know whenever you're fasting, then, then do know that you're fasting. It's, it's better if it's kind of kept to yourself. I'm not saying there's this super legalistic thing where you got to be like acting like you're eating, but you're actually not eating so that nobody knows that you're fasting or whatever. You can tell, you can tell people, ah, sorry, I'm not going to eat. I'm fasting right now. But the whole point here is that you're not on Instagram being like hashtag hungry, hashtag blessed. Like that's not how fasting is supposed to work, right? You don't, you don't take a picture of an empty plate and like feasting on the Lord today. That is not what, what, what you do, but that is kind of what you do personally, right? 
you, you just say, look, I'm just, I'm just not going to eat. Here's the, here's the goal. Here's what I'm, um, uh, here's what I, I, I want to do. So when you consider the way that the fasting works in the Old Testament, especially, you'd almost expect the practice of fasting to go away when Jesus establishes his kingdom. When Jesus comes to redeem so much of what has gone wrong, and you see all the ways that fasting is used in the Old Testament, much of that Jesus says he came to correct and he came to straighten out. So you'd almost expect Jesus to say, fasting was what you did when you longed for me to come, but now that I'm here, I'm here to feast, the table is full, why don't you dine? But instead, what Jesus says is, here's what you do. You feast when I'm with you, you fast when I'm gone. And so he continues to tell us, you should be fasting. And I'm going to look at you right now. You should be fasting. You should be. And I'm looking at myself whenever I say that. I should be. And I'm telling you that because I don't. It's just never been a part of my spiritual practice. Completely out of rhythm. Completely messed up. I'm on, I'm on the seesaw stuck up high, and there's no, there's no rhythm to it at all. But Jesus says, once he's gone, you should be fasting. It should be a part of what you do. And what we have to figure out is how does the kingdom work and how are aspects of the kingdom uh, begun in Jesus but not quite there. So, so going back to our original passage there in Luke chapter 5, he says, you should be fasting. But then my question is why? All right, fine. Jesus says we should be fasting. Fine. I'm willing to say whatever Jesus says, even if I don't know why, I'll do it, because that's what I'm supposed to do when you follow Jesus, right? But I still have the question, why should we fast? If we have the Spirit, should we not feast alongside His disciples? If Jesus says someone greater than me is coming in the Spirit, and now we have the Spirit, shouldn't we feast just like they were feasting? Shouldn't that be a part of what we do? Why fast now? And this is where I think we have to find our rhythm and why rhythm is so important to a healthy spiritual life and following Jesus. Our fasting mirrors all the other fasting uh, in Scripture with some slight changes. Like, Like fasting in the New Covenant is a little bit different. We still fast as ones that are on the, uh, the, the other side of a spiritual experience of a sacred moment. Do you remember that? So that's what we said, those first few examples that we looked at with Moses and Elijah where we said, like, there's this big moment that has happened, and then they fast, and then that that leads to kind of a sending out that comes afterward as to to part. And so our fasting still works kind of the same way. We should fast on as ones that are on the other side of a big spiritual experience. And when I say a big spiritual experience, I'm not saying, man, worship was good this morning. Man, I like those songs that we sang. Man, I sang loud this morning. Oh, that was great. We did some hymns. That is an an experience that I love. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not talking about that kind of experience. What I'm saying is we, we live now this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, post a, a, a massive moving of God. Now, it may be that your fasting does follow something major that happens in your life. Something, some major sacred experience that happens. And, and, and you feel the need not to eat in order to kind of physically embody what you have seen and what you have experienced. 
So, so maybe that, that, that happens. But I think more to the point for all of us as believers, we are always, day in and day out, responding to the power of the cross. We find ourselves every day when we wake up in the wake of the work of Jesus and his resurrection. That never stops for us. We never move past that. The Christian life doesn't start at the resurrection and then we move on to the advanced stuff of fasting. That is not how that works. The Christian life is not, I got saved, I got baptized, now I'm going to move up to varsity level Christian and I'm going to start fasting. That is not what we are talking about here. Fasting happens in response to the continual, our continual heart response to the work of Jesus. We too are responding to a sacred moment and looking for what the next mission is that God is calling us to. Just like what happened in Acts chapter 13 when Paul and Barnabas were sent out after they fasted. We live our lives with this kind of dual reality, this remembrance of what Christ has done and the expectation of where our lives are going. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I think this beautifully pictures the tension of those two realities with us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This one's a little bit longer if you want to turn there. If not, it'll be up on the screen. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 10. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. So do you hear that? We physically carry the death of Jesus. How do we do that? Well, there's a lot of different ways we can do that. The Lord's Supper is a a physical way we can do that. But I think fasting is a way that we carry the physical, uh, that we carry the death of Jesus in our body and that we also display the life of the resurrection to a physical embodiment of a spiritual reality. For for we who live are always being over to being being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe, and therefore speak. For we know that the one who has raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus. Uh, And present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary and light affliction is producing for us an absolute, incomparable, eternal weight of glory. For we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and and what is unseen is eternal. So do you hear Paul's logic here as he talks to us? He says, he says, day by day, our inner self is renewed as we look back on the cross and as we look forward to the weight, the incomparable weight of glory. We are renewed by these twin realities. We sit in between these two spiritual moments and fasting is a natural, appropriate response to embody the seriousness and the weight of those two truths. I could stop there because I think that's enough that should prompt us to make fasting a regular part of our rhythm. 
But there's more here. So no doubt, like those saints in the Old Testament, we also lament great and great personal and, and, and community and national tragedies. We lament these great calamities that come uh, uh, upon us in the wake of death, destruction, sin, war, and all the other painful, horrible effects of sin on our world, it is more than appropriate to fast in response to the grief of this world, personal or national. It is more than appropriate because that has not been taken away from us. Yes, we have the Spirit. Yes, Jesus has come. Yes, the bridegroom has been here. Yes, all of these things have happened. But the kingdom is not fully consummated yet. And so what that means is here on this earth, we still have to deal with all the yucky nastiness of sin and brokenness and suffering. And so it's more than appropriate for us to be able to lament those things when those things are present in front of us. We are also called, like the Old Testament saints, to lament our sin, to repent of it, and to ask God to redeem us. I could quote half of the New Testament here to back me up, but I'll trust that you know that this is true. We too are called to repent. And my hope is that in seeing all of this, you will see how fasting works in the Bible and how it should work today. It is a physical embodiment of a spiritual reality. This is exactly how it is designed for us to work. That's how fasting is for us. Now I say all of that And this is probably a good place for me to end my sermon, but I'm sorry, I'm not going to because this is fasting and feasting. So we got a whole nother sermon. No, I'm just kidding. I am going to talk about feasting here for just a little bit. And I would love to be able to spend another 45 minutes talking about feasting. I'm not going to do that, but there is some stuff that we need to be able to see here. Fasting is an important process. The nature of fasting is that it is a practice of discipline and self-control but notice that self-control is not a, a, a product of the flesh. It's a, it's a fruit of the Spirit. And so if you somehow manage to, to avoid your Slim Jims and your Dr. Pepper for your fast, that, is, that, is not, that, that may be because you are super disciplined and you are able to avoid those things, right? And if it is, good for you. And that will be the sum total of your spiritual reward that you get as you didn't have Slim Jims that day. Because I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about a physical discipline derived from your effort. I'm talking about a fruit of the Spirit that drives us deeper into relationship with God. And there's so much more I could say about how it reveals uh, our hearts, how it centers us on, on what matters, about how it forces us to come face to face with the fact that man does not live on bread alone. So much more I want to say, and I'll save it for whenever that next sermon series comes along. I think if I were to, to, to chart all the benefits of, of fasting, then it might defeat the purpose of me talking about this morning at all, which is that we don't fast because of the result we think we can get from it. We fast because it is a natural response to the, 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 the weight of who God is and the, 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 the brokenness and the suffering of the world we live in. That's why we fast, because it's the natural response. 
we don't initiate in fasting. We respond in fasting. So now I've said all that, I want you to hang with me for like five, maybe ten more minutes. Five, ten more minutes. Hang with me because what I'm about to say in application to all of that may be the most important thing that I'll say this whole time and may completely change the lives of some of you in here. The primary purpose in this message is not to get you to fast, though I think you should. I know God's convicted me about my lack of fasting. The purpose is is that I want you to find a healthy rhythm. See, God has called us to feasting and fasting, and both are deeply theological responses to our world, whether you realize it or not. The problem comes when we only feast or we only fast. You say, well, well, no one only fasts. No, 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 no one fasts all the time. Like, no, no one's like, like never eating. Obviously, that would be a problem physically. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is from a physical standpoint, you may not fast at all times, but it's very easy for us to look at, at one of those, those moments of fasting that I described. Grief over things that sin has broken in this world. Death, pain, suffering. Grief over our own sin. Grief over any of those things, especially grief over our own sin. I have sat with so many people that are completely paralyzed in their Christian walk because they are so convinced that they are not good enough and they, that they, they can't be saved because they keep sinning over and over and over and over again. And so they find themselves stuck in this place because they can't, they can't get to feasting because they are, they are metaphorically fasting, lamenting their sin. Lamenting your sin is good, but you're not meant to stay there. You are meant to move to something else. You are never meant to stay in your grief. And it's not saying move on and forget. It's saying that there is, there is a rhythm that comes with being in this world and being in Christ. If you are not in Christ, then you should be in constant lament over your sin. You should be stuck. There's nothing to swing you over to feasting. Oh, but in Christ, there is. In Christ, we are not stuck in in grief, whether that be grief that has been inflicted upon us and we have responded to, or grief we have inflicted upon ourselves due to our own sin. Or grief over a national reality. For crying out loud, we have got an election coming up this month and, or this year, and, th- and there are so many people that are stuck in grief over an election that happened four years ago. They're stuck. Because their hope is in something here and they need to be able to find a way to be able to feast in something greater than a politician. And so what we are called to is something something beyond the, the, the lament and the grief and the fasting that comes with it, but we are also called to feasting. I could go on and on and on here. It is so easy to find ourselves stuck on this wide variety of things. And it is good to grieve and to lament in a broken world. But whenever we, we find that rhythm broken, when the swing never comes back, when the seesaw never goes down, whenever you can't find that beat again, that's when you will find your spiritual life in a complete tailspin. The flip side of this is that most of us, most of us, aren't hung up on the lament 
and the sadness and the grief that this world brings us. Most of us are stuck in a, in a position of feasting. And when I say feasting, just like fasting, the way we use the word feasting is not the way the Bible uses it. We use feasting as this idea that we are, we are fully satisfying every craving and pursuit, that it's about extreme partying, that it's primarily about the fulfillment of our, desi- of our desires. Feasting is almost exclusively defined as being about us. In the Bible, that looks very, very different again. Over and over again, we are told of this banquet, his goodness and this, this, this desire to taste and see that God is good. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And and right there, Paul is referring to a a, a feast that's an Old Testament prescribed feast and the way we're supposed to participate in it now. Don't even have time to get into the Old Testament feast. But the point is, in Christ, we feast differently now. Matthew 26, 26 through 8. 28, Jesus is instilling the the new covenant in the Lord's Supper. He says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. A sampling of the feast that is to come. This is my body. And then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Psalm 34, what we just sang here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. The feasting is not primarily about us. It is primarily about him. I read from you Joel chapter 1 just a few minutes ago talking about fasting. If you keep reading in Joel chapter 2, multiple fasts are declared. Continually God says, go fast, go fast, go fast. And then when you get to Joel chapter 2 verse 19, it says this. God God hears them and then he says this. Look, I am about to send you grain, new wine, and fresh oil. You will be satiated with them. And I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nations. In verse 25, you skip down from 19 to 25. I will repay for you the years that the swarming locust ate, the young locust, the destroying locust, and the devouring locust. My great army that I sent against you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. My people will never again be put to shame. You will know that I am present in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. So you, you see the fast over and over again, the lament, the sorrow, and then God comes and says, you will be satiated. You will have everything you want because I will be the one who gives it to you and you will feast on me and what I give you. It's meant to be in rhythm. This world's brokenness and our sin demand lament. It would be inappropriate for us to stand up here in the, in the face 
of all that has gone wrong in this world and all that continually goes wrong in this world and all the sin in our own lives that we cannot stop and all the sorrow that happens in our nation as we watch and, 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 and the fact that children's hospitals and orphanages exist and the fact that funeral homes exist and all of these things, it would be inappropriate for us to stand up here and feast at all times knowing that those things are real. Fasting must be a part of our recognition that we live in a broken world where all these things are true. The brokenness of this world demands lament and fasting. But the grace of God demands joy and feasting. And both realities, for now, are present for us. Until our world is healed and our sin is no more, we must grieve and lament. But we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. We do not lament as those who do not have hope. Instead, we grieve and we lament and we fast with one eye on the horizon. And and a tongue that has tasted and seen that God is good. We grieve and we fast, not as those who try to perform for God, but who recognize the world is broken. But then we feast too, because we know the full feast that awaits us, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Both are appropriate responses to a Christian who loves God and hates sin. Let's pray. Taste and see that you are good. Fast, declare a fast, and repent in in light of the brokenness of the world. Dual instructions you have commanded us to. Father, where we have forsaken the fast because we have been feasting on cotton candy and stuff that doesn't satisfy, Father, for that we repent. Father, where we have forsaken the feast because we are so hung up on what we see instead of what we don't see in your kingdom, Father, for that we too repent. Father, for the one in here who has not tasted and seen, for the one in here who does not know Jesus, I pray that their feasting would come to an end and that you would make their lament palpable to bring them to you. And for those in here that do know Jesus but are stuck in this place where they they can't see your goodness anymore. It's been so long since they have tasted. Father, I pray that you would give them a taste of your goodness and remind them of the feast that awaits. And even the joy that you have called us to now in this place. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.